He is risen. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 13, it's the passage that we're considering for this Easter Sunday. If you have a Bible, you can turn there in your Bible. If you don't, you'll find it also printed for you in your worship guide. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I have a dream that recurs with some frequency. It happened in the last week, in fact. I was at a bed and breakfast in a beautiful country-like setting. And as I had that that panoramic scope that you sometimes have in a dream, there's a, a beautiful country church next door. And as you peer into the church... All kinds of notable people have been gathered, famous and important. I think this go-around, Bill Clinton was there, which is somewhat odd. But as soon as I'm looking in on this crowd gathered in the church, I realize that they're gathered there for a wedding. And as soon as I realize that they're gathered there for a wedding, I remember that I'm supposed to be performing the wedding. And as soon as I realize I'm supposed to be performing the wedding, I realize that I don't know where my clothes are. Perhaps in, in some, some form you've had a similar dream. And so I find myself, what do I do? Right? Boys and girls, I think you would agree with me that it would not be a very good idea for me to perform a wedding in my underwear. I don't think the bride or the groom would appreciate that very much. Or even if I had jeans and a t-shirt or a pair of running shoes, uh, running shorts and a, a workout shirt, well, under armor, it's not really fitting to the occasion. And if I'm going to perform a wedding, I need a suit, or I need a minister's robe. I need something that is adequate and appropriate to the role. I need to dress that part. If you want to play a certain role, then you have to dress for that role. 
Notice that in verse 12 and verse 14, Paul talks about putting on. In verse 12, he talks about putting on the armor of light. In verse 14, he talks about putting on Christ himself. And this language, this putting on, as we translate it in English, is, is language borrowed from the theater. It means, it meant in the day, to assume the role, to play the part. That is the question for us today. Are we willing to assume the role, to play the part that Jesus would have us to play after his death and resurrection? See, all along in our sermon series on Romans, we've been saying that the resurrection changes everything. And another way to put that is, in light of the resurrection of Christ, a new drama has dawned. A new story is being spun out in which we are all participants, one way or another. And the question that Paul has for the church in Rome, and the question for us is, will we participate as expected in that story? Will we play the role? As we seek to understand this drama... We need to understand several aspects of story in general. Things like conflict and how to engage in conflict and understanding plot. And this is actually what Paul is unpacking for the church in Rome. Right? If everything, if all of God's promises have been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then everything must be rethought. And chapter 13 of Romans is Paul doing a lot of that rethinking with the church in Rome on how they're supposed to live. So it helps us to understand how we're supposed to live on this side of the resurrection. Let's walk through the chapter together. The beginning of Romans 13 is a fairly famous passage. It talks about how someone is supposed to live in relationship to government. And Paul urges that you are to be submissive to the governing authorities. In verse 1, you're to be submissive because God has instituted those authorities. And in verse 2... Paul tells us that if we rebel against those authorities, we're actually rebelling against God. Now, throughout church history, some have used this passage to argue that, hey, if you don't like what the government is doing, your job is to submit. That quickly becomes problematic when we think of periods of history or even places in the world right now where a government might instruct you to do something that is absolutely contrary to what Jesus would want you to do. Raises certain ethical questions. This really isn't what Paul is after. Paul's agenda is rather different. His agenda is that the conflict that the church is engaged in must be rethought in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the Old Testament and think about the Old Testament people of God throughout that history, throughout that story, the Old Testament people of God saw God's victory, His fulfillment of His promises, as nations that opposed them, nations that held Israel under their thumb, that they would be thrown down and Israel would be put on top. This is how they believed God would fulfill His promises. Now, put yourself in the shoes of a first century church person in the city of Rome for just a moment. Jesus has shown up. He didn't do anything about foreign nations. He really didn't do anything about Rome, which is the empire that holds Israel under its thumb. That wasn't his agenda. So if you're picking up the story that's been going on for a long time after the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden the conflict has to be rethought. The conflict that what you're waging war against, the problem that needs to be solved, isn't the nation that oppresses you. Jesus was much more interesting in talking about things like sin and death. And so for the church in Rome that might be tempted to pick up that old story and say, hey, we don't like Caesar very much. 
why don't we oppose his authority in the name of Jesus? Paul's worried that that will become the story. And he's saying, no, that's not the way to be faithful to the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, taxation, which seems to be an issue here that particularly concerns Paul, is a very good example of this. Uh, Rome levied heavy taxes. Uh, they levied taxes that were direct. They levied taxes that were indirect. And we know historically that about this period of time, the indirect taxes were incredibly unpopular. In fact, riots are about to break out in Rome itself over indirect taxes. And so you can imagine someone coming to believe in Jesus and being really frustrated for a long time about taxes and saying, you know what, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. I'm not paying any taxes. Jesus gets my money, not the government. How easy it would be to baptize a certain agenda in light of the resurrection of Jesus and carry on an old story that that Paul knows Jesus doesn't want continued. Paul's saying, in essence, oh, listen, I, I understand Roman taxation is heavy, but you have to understand it costs something to run an empire, and you benefit from some of those costs. And if you decide that you're not going to be, pay taxes, you're going to incur the wrath of the state, it's going to be bad for the church, and you're not going to do anything for the name of Jesus. In fact, you're just going to compromise that name, because who's going to want to listen to a bunch of rebel rousers who are causing a problem in the empire seemingly for their own gain. This is what concerns Paul as he's writing to the church in Rome. And we see that how easy it is for the church to pick the wrong conflict, right? to, to engage this world, and perhaps even sometimes we politically might pick the wrong conflict. There's a story I want to share with you this morning, and it's a bit of a difficult story. It's the story of Kate and Andy Grossmare. And, uh, but let me say at the outset that there's no apologies here. You know, we get together to celebrate the resurrection and we pull out our pastels and our pretty colors. We do candy and fun things and all of that's appropriate to a degree to celebrate the resurrection. But at the same time, we have to understand what happened just three days ago. We have to understand that Jesus didn't die on the cross and raised from the dead for you to have a good vacation. Jesus is resurrected from the dead for sin and death to be defeated. And in order to grapple with a very big Jesus who solves a very big problem, we have to talk about big problems. And a big problem is exactly what Kate and Andy Grossmere faced. On March 28th in 2010, uh, Connor McBride, a tall, sandy-haired 19-year-old, walked into the Tallahassee Police Department and told the officer on duty that he had just shot his fiance in the head. The officer on duty was so taken aback, she didn't think he was, he was uh, serious until he said, this is not a joke, and began weeping. Uh, Ann Grossmare was Connor's girlfriend, 19, taking classes at the local community college, had been a standout uh, Thesbian in the theater uh, had a lot going for her, and um, but their relationship was fraught with fighting. In fact, they had been fighting for the last 36 hours. Some of the people later who knew them would say that their argument essentially had become the relationship. As the 36 hours wore on, and they were arguing about mundane things, things that couples usually argue about, like you didn't, you didn't ask me about my test, or you didn't, you didn't. Um, you watch TV rather than talking to me. Completely mundane, nothing out of the ordinary, but it continued to 
devolve in those 36 hours, and Connor was known for irrational bursts of rage. They were fighting out in the driveway and told Carter that, uh, Connor, excuse me, that she wished he was dead. And she was preparing to leave, so he marched back into the household and got the shotgun, loaded it, and prepared to kill himself. He said, I'll get Anne by fulfilling her wish. But it was at that point that Anne marched back in from the car to continue the fight, and Connor decided to kill her rather than taking his own life. Connor was incarcerated and charged with first-degree murder, which carries with it, uh, almost without exception, a mandatory life sentence, if not the death penalty. So Connor, 18, was looking at a lifetime behind bars. Four days after the shooting, Amy lay brain dead in the hospital, and her father, Andy, was praying, praying for a miracle. And he describes that on that fourth day, uh, he, was, uh, he had the, a profound supernatural experience. There's no question in his mind that he was visited both by his daughter, Anne, and by Jesus. And they came and told him the same thing. We want you to forgive Connor. Can you imagine? Four days after your child had been taken from you, four days after all your sacrifices and all your investment had been rendered seemingly pointless, Jesus shows up and suggests to you forgiveness. What would your conflict be if your child was taken from you in this way? Wouldn't it be to seek justice? Wouldn't it be to make sure that the killer was punished in an appropriate fashion? And yet here Jesus shows up and says, You know what? Andy, your conflict isn't against Connor. Your conflict is Jesus' conflict. It's against sin and death. And the way that you're going to engage that conflict is by forgiving Connor. What an overwhelming burden. What an overwhelming challenge. Andy uh, and his wife Kate took their faith very seriously. They believed that Jesus is king, and so they began to embark on a path of being committed to forgiving Connor for what had transpired. Oddly, when uh, Connor was incarcerated, he had the opportunity to list five names of those people who would be permitted to come visit him in prison. And if you ask him now, he'd say, I, kn- I have no idea why I listed Kate Grossmere, the mother of Amy, as one of the people, but he did at the time. And so Kate had opportunity to go and visit him in prison, and she did so. And as she went, she asked her husband, is there some message that you want me to tell to, uh, to Connor, to relay to him? And he said, yes, tell him I love him and I forgive him. And Kate said, I wanted to be able to give him the same message. Connor owed us a debt he could never repay. And releasing him from that debt would release us from expecting that anything in this world could satisfy us. The Grossmans understood that the resurrection redefines the conflict that we find ourselves in. Does the resurrection define your conflict? Is your conflict defined by that which gets in the way of your happiness and your pleasure and your kids doing better? Or is your conflict that which God determines it to be? Now, realize for a moment how important this is. Because there's a story being spun out, and Paul is challenging us to be in that story by reflecting the person of Jesus in that story to the whole world. 
And if you choose the wrong conflict, then you, you relocate yourself to the periphery of the ongoing story. And that's a place of great tension. It's a place of great unhappiness. Because the main plot line is, is going forward, whether you like it or not. And to not be participating in the main plot line is to not really be human. You know, you will always know that something is wrong until you actually find yourself identifying what the proper conflict is. So understanding conflict correctly is the first part of understanding this drama that is informed by the resurrection. This new drama, and we're asking, how do we dress for the role? Well, we have to understand the drama going on if we answer that question correctly. The second thing Paul focuses on is how you live in the midst of that conflict, how you address the conflict. Do you pick up your sword? Do you run and overthrow the government? He's saying no to these things, and what he chooses to focus on in the midst of Romans 13 is love. Your expression of selfless love, loving your neighbor as yourself, is the epitome of what it means to be dressed for the role. Paul says, interestingly, that the commandments themselves, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, are fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. You will not do any wrong to your neighbor if you love them as you love yourself. Well, have you ever wondered if you're loving... If loving one's neighbor as oneself is a way to fulfill all of the commands, why didn't God just say that in the first place? Right? Why that massive tome of the Mosaic Law, if we could have just summed it up like that? If you think about it for a moment, love is actually an incredibly abstract term. It lacks definition, and in fact, you yourselves and people all around us often use the idea of love to excuse sin. In extreme examples, we can all probably think of someone who has engaged in adultery or stolen something. Why? According to them, it was for love. And so in the Old Testament, we needed a list of do's and don'ts that helped to flesh out the idea of love. But with the coming of Jesus, all those lists are fulfilled in a brilliant way. They're personified in God himself as he demonstrates to us what love is and lays down his life for us. And it's as we participate in that love for one another in a selfless way where you're really giving something up to express love to someone in a real way, people say, wait a minute, that shows me Jesus. I see Jesus in that. Someone is dressed for the role. Andy and Kate Grossmeyer understood that love fulfills God's command. But they also understood that simply saying, we forgive you, is pretty empty. It's pretty abstract. Real love requires real action. What would it mean for the gross mares to really love Connor, the person who had taken their daughter's life? The gross mares were intent on answering that question, and they began to research something called restorative justice, which is something that's relatively new in the criminal justice system. And the way restorative justice works is this. All the parties sit down together uh, in a room. So you have the person who's committed the crime, the people who have been affected by the crime, the lawyers representing both parties, perhaps an arbiter. And they sit down, and the person who goes first is the person who has been affected by the crime. And they say, this is what you did, and this is how it affected us. And this is how we were hurt. And then the person who did the crime says, this is what happened. This is why I did what I did. This is what I would like to say to you after having done what I did. And so restorative justice had never been attempted before in a murder case. 
the Grossmeyers and Connor were the first to attempt it. And they sat down in a room together. And you can only imagine the tension. And the Grossmeyers got to go first, having lost their daughter, having suffered the crime. And they started with year one of Amy's life. And they proceeded to go through her entire life. And then relayed to Connor, this is what you took from us. And then Connor eventually got to go and got to explain what was going on and why what happened happened. And the gross mares were incredibly disappointed in that meeting. Because after, after the fact, Andy will talk about how he was hoping that there was some detail that was neglected. Something that was left out that would make more sense of what had transpired. Right? Uh, uh, maybe, maybe Connor thought the gun wasn't loaded. Or his finger slipped on the trigger. Something that wouldn't make the seem as tragic as it was. And there was nothing forthcoming. It was that tragic. It was that pointless. And so they walked out terribly disappointed. But they still walked out committed to the notion that even as they engage justice, justice should be a tool of, of, uh, of remaking this person. Of making them whole again. Of restoring them. Isn't that the story that we're celebrating today? That the justice met on the cross actually ends up restoring who we are? At the end of this meeting of restorative justice, the, um, the crazy thing that happens is that the people who are offended, the people who are hurt in the criminal act, get to recommend a sentence. And I already told you that in Florida, you're looking at life for first-degree murder. The gross mayors recommended that Connor spend no less than 10 years and no more than 20 in prison for his crime. And he was eventually sentenced to 20 years with 10 years of probation following that. And the gross mayors, even though disappointed, stripped of their daughter, continued to visit Connor about once a month, committed that something beautiful will come out of something tragic. How much have they given to love this boy? Right. Is this not profoundly selfless love? when it would be so much easier to be angry and to vilify him and to hate him and to hope that he got the longest possible sentence. And yet the very story is an echo to us of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gross mares have dressed for the role. There's one other aspect about story that Paul's unfolding for us, and that last is understanding really the plot, kind of timing. Paul talks about, he says in verse 11, you need to know the time. You need to wake up. The world is sleepy, and as a Christian, you're not supposed to be. What does he mean exactly? He goes on to write, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Many have argued that what Paul is talking about is that Jesus' return is imminent. He thinks he's about to come back. He's urging faithfulness as a result. I don't think that's what Paul is after here. Paul understands that Jesus has broken into our story and he's, he's created a new drama and day, uh, daybreak has started. And those who come to worship Jesus realize that daybreak has started and so it's only appropriate that you live in a new way. Not as the rest of the world who live, who likes to live as if it's night. Who likes to do things that are only done in the darkness. Right? And there are things that you engage in that you only do in private that you keep behind closed doors. And Paul says the time for that is done. It's time to walk as those who know Christ and who walk in the daytime and who are exposed so that they might make the story of Jesus exposed. How do you do that? 
How do you get dressed with Jesus? For some, it may involve simply rising each day and praying. Asking Christ to clothe you, to make you and your thoughts and your will and your intentions and your actions to reflect His story. Perhaps it involves rising each morning and reading a section of the Gospels and seeing some aspect of Jesus' character and so and then praying that the Holy Spirit would make you such a person that you exhibit a portion of that character to everyone that you come into contact with that day. And make no mistake, at the end, Paul says that also being clothed with Christ involves making no provision for the flesh. To what extent do you make opportunity for your own sin? The sins that you like to indulge in. Paul says, stop. Give it up. It's not appropriate in the light of Christ. And one question that I, I have to ask myself, and you need to struggle with, is if, if I'm not praying to be clothed with Christ, if I'm not seeking Jesus himself to know his character so that I might, might reveal it as I tell his story, and if I'm not being intent to make no provision for the flesh, what am I doing? How would I dare call myself a Christian? Romans 13, Paul is saying this is what it means to walk with Christ. This is what it means to play the role. Sometimes I think we pretend and get halfway dressed up when we're really not playing the role at all. So, if you're tracking with me, I've recommended three things to you to do. To apply yourself in getting to know Jesus. To ask Him to clothe you with Himself. And to make no provision for the flesh. But there is one other thing that I would encourage you to do. And that is to learn from someone who does it better than you. If you're going to be an actor, or really if you're going to practice any trade of skill, what do you want to do? You want to study under someone who does it better than you. And there are lots of people in the world who dress with Christ much better than we do. And when you recognize one of those people, you should try to saddle up next to them and learn everything that you can from them. And that can happen here. But for me, you know, when I think about who really, who's someone who shows me what it means to, to put on the armor of light, to put on Christ and exhibit that for me? I think of the G brothers. Particularly, I think of Isaiah, not to throw a nunth under the bus. But Isaiah is the older, wiser brother of the two who has led faithfully for a long time. And he's a smart guy, and he's, he's connected, it seems, in Rajamundri. And there's really no doubt in my mind that he could have done anything he wanted to. And so what does he decide to do? Right? He decides that there's a conflict that is still going on as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that conflict is sin and death. And sin and death is most, most manifest for him amongst the poor and destitute, the lowest part of the caste system in India, the untouchables. He says, okay, I'm going to spend the rest of my life engaging in selfless love that seeks to minister to the lowest of the low. And he gives up a lot to do that. He lives at great expense to himself so that he can minister to those people. Right? You can't tell me that Isaiah is not a man who doesn't know what time it is. He walks as one who knows that it's daytime and he exhibits the love of Christ. Next week, we're unrolling uh, our India trips. We're going to start to talk about the two trips we're taking in the fall. And I've told you and will continue to tell you for the next 10 years that in 10 years, we want pretty much everyone in Trinity Harbor to take a trip to India. 
And we talk about all the good. We're building churches this year. We're digging wells. We're awesome, right? But there's another reason that we go to India. And that's because when we go to India and we meet the people who live hungrily and don't have clean water and have one set of clothes and aren't educated and live a life of hard labor and die from things that we cure all the time with an over-the-counter drug, people who have lost innumerable children because of the conditions in which they live, whose life expectancy is almost half of yours, and then you meet these people and they worship Jesus with a reckless abandon and joy that you know nothing of. And you realize, my goodness, my faith is very small. But if you go and you're willing to engage that reality that your faith is small, you also have the opportunity to engage the potential for your faith to be made very big. And so we want to show you our India video in preparation for next week, but also with this very challenge. The church in India, and not that the church in India is perfect, but a lot of the church of India is very dressed for the role. They've assumed the part. Are you willing to do the same?